for those of you who have been coming in and out and uh, didn't hear this at the beginning, we are going to have time for some panel discussion. We're getting very close to that. Um, my job is to try to do justice to um, this article that looked at some of the uh, challenges and opportunities, and it was written by Nadine Foster, who did the, the bulk of this work and did a very nice job. Um, it was uh, well received in the, uh, in the early stages and, and reviewed very well, and I think it has the potential to be thought-provoking. And uh, Tony Delito also contributed to the, to the article. So that's going to be my, my job, is to try to bring some of these things up. And, and um, obviously, this is near the end, so these might be things that are people are thinking about for the forum, too. And then Chris is going to do the final conclusion. I think I'll be back one more time to, to have you throw tomatoes at me. So what they did in this article was they looked at the differences between entry-level education and the current therapist and the challenges and the opportunities. And um, they're not, again, mutually exclusive. They're obviously related to one another. But I think there are some aspects that um, clearly overlap, but there's also some other issues that, um, that can be considered separately. Uh, the, uh, not surprisingly, uh, based on what we talked about earlier, is just this, the challenge um, of the, the focus of entry-level training. Uh, the, there's this kind of contrast now that the realization that musculoskeletal pain, especially low back pain, is probably best conceptualized with biopsychosocial models, especially when you're incorporating disability and the, the experience of pain. Uh, but the entry-level training is, has a very heavy emphasis on biomedical models and an emphasis on biomechanical principles. And, you know, classically therapists are not introduced to the fear avoidance model or some of those other psychological models, at least not uniformly. There's not a, uh, a, a curricular check for that. And that, this is not unique to the states. Another nice aspect of this article and this issue was the, uh, the attempt to get an international perspective. And um, the teaching of pain, in, in general, it's viewed to be inadequate for professions. Um, again, when you think even more globally, one of the main reasons for folks to seek pain or to seek healthcare treatment is for pain. And the folks who are accessed most frequently are primary care physicians and when you look at the amount of specific pain education those folks have it's it's not a good match uh, for the dealing of that um, in this survey in the UK their conclusion um, was inadequate preparation for professional practice um, keep in mind that was sponsored by the International Association for the Study of Pain um, but I think when you see when they focused in on the physical therapist we did actually receive the highest amount but there was extreme variability in that five to 158 contact hours in entry-level curriculum. And um, it's not often taught integrated. It's often taught in a piecemeal. So it's not taught um, uh, like we're kind of talking to you about it today. It's in conjunction with an intervention or in, in response to an intervention. Um, in the United States, I had the, uh, one of the things um, Nadine asked me to do was look at the normative model, which um, for someone looking, working in academics, I am shamefully going to admit it was the first time I looked at the normative model um, in detail. So um, I looked at it, and pain is not in there all that much. Um, and it was only mentioned in the foundational science section, and it was only mentioned in response to physical agents, which, um, again, if you're studying pain, uh, the, that's a little discouraging because we know that the, there's not a huge 
treatment effect for physical agents on pain directly that you can get similar effects from placebo treatment. So it's not even situated well to reflect the science. Um, and then of course, there's a clinical science section um, to the normative model and pain is not mentioned in that part, uh, which is to me not acceptable given the clinical ramifications of, of pain. Uh, there is then, um, and this is not unique to pain, but I think again when we start looking at this, there is this lack of cohesion with clinical education that everybody seems to be interested in um, recently. So if you happen to have been uh, introduced to this biopsychosocial approach, there's a very good chance that the clinical education component will not reinforce that. And we do know that the clinical education component is influential on practice patterns. So even if you're exposed to this information, uh, there's a good chance um, as an entry-level student you will not have it reinforced. And chances are the, the, the clinical part is going to outweigh the didactic part um, based on past experiences. The, uh, until recently, the, it was, I always found this interesting as a, um, as a student that there was always recognition that psychosocial factors were important to physical therapy and then it was kind of brushed away when, when, when we were taught. So there, there has been adequate attention to this in our literature and um, we don't typically know how to implement current best evidence recommendations for psychosocial factors. Um, but I do think there are certain aspects of our practice where the psychosocial stuff has been well defined and pain is certainly one of them. Even though it is still not crystal clear, um, we can talk about specific psychosocial factors and we can talk about the evidence that's associated with them. We don't have to talk about the broad influence of psychosocial factors. Um, and, and this is uh, not at all surprising with continuing education because it's, it's modeled after the entry-level education that it's, there's biomedical, biomechanical orientation um, and it will re it's reinforced that in continuing education. And there are very few uh, options based on psychosocial models of intervention. Um, again, no systematic way to look at this, but when you look at continuing education offerings, there are not a lot of um, people going around the country and, and teaching graded exercise and graded exposure and educational interventions um, based on these models. This was an interesting one that I really hadn't thought of, and I'm, I'm glad uh, Nadine brought this up, just uh, the, because we talk a lot about patient um, expectations of outcome, uh, but there is an expectation of what our profession is defined as, um, and uh, of course our APTA has gone long ways to reinforcing um, certain aspects of that, of the hands-on treatment part of that, and that's an important component. Um, but it may lead to this idea that um, part of that hands-on approach I think is very beneficial, the therapeutic part, but there's this other part that that hands-on approach is identifying exactly what is wrong in the back. And I think if that is the expectation of the person seeking healthcare, there is this potential for the person to practice the way that the expectation is. So this is a little different than the patient expectation of a poor outcome. This is, you know, I'm going to PT because they're going to find out what is wrong with me um, by manual identification. Um, and again, I'm not suggesting we change uh, to a hands-off treatment approach, um, but I'm saying that that hands-on, I think, is, is related to the treatment and not as much as that identifying exactly what is wrong. 
Um, so I thought that was a very interesting point that was brought up in the article. And then that has been discussed, um, even though we have a broad idea about these, we as researchers especially need to do a better job about identifying the ones that to focus on. And there is also um, a distinction I think that needs to be made. Well, a lot of the stuff that we have talked about today, we focus on it because it is modifiable. There are certainly psychosocial factors that influence um, patients' presentation in the clinic um, that are relevant but that are not modifiable, at least by us. And you know, unemployment would be a classic example. Yes, that is a psychosocial factor. Yes, that has influence, but it's not a treatment target. It's not an assessment target. Um, we're focusing on modifiable. So th for people to focus on the unmodifiable, it might be wasted, wasted time. And then, of course, um, reimbursement does not um, value these types of um, approaches currently as delivered by physical therapists. Uh, and, and this is something that um, will continue to be a big barrier unless there's some system changes uh, involved here. But, um, you know, there's no coding um, and there's not a way to routinely track the downstream savings that you might be getting if your goal is to prevent recurrence and prevent chronicity. Um, that's really a downstream um, effect. And really, we're geared at measuring those outcomes when the treatment episode ends and our reimbursement and things are based on that. But these systems are getting more sophisticated and, and, and Julie certainly has a lot of experience in a, a sophisticated system and um, there may be some ways to work on this um, implementing of the downstream savings and it might be an incentive to use some of these um, for the payers. So um, Chris and I, with the help of some of our colleagues, uh, Mark Bishop helped out with this and one of my doctoral students in, in putting you know, kind of a, a picture that might help. And in, in this way, this is really, I think, how, uh, how at least therapists are trained and, and certainly how some of them pra practice with low back pain, that there is this acknowledgement that there's overlap between these two, but the practice is really kind of at either end, that there's a standard practice where you're primarily uh, focused on physical factors. And then there becomes a point in the episode where it's so heavily involved with psychological that it's out of our realm of practice and there's a referral to mental health that is indicated. And I think we're pretty good at operating in these extremes, um, but as uh, the problem with a lot of approaches, um, there is this middle you have to deal with. And if we had frequencies of patient reporting on here, um, which we could have made up hypothetically, I would guess the bulk of our patients are in the middle where there's a combination of physical and psychological. So this is kind of conceptually um, where we view the, the current state, that it's kind of this two ends of a spectrum, and, and the middle may not be being addressed adequately. So the opportunities then, and not surprisingly, are directly linked to the challenges. And just the, the opportunities are to emphasize biopsychosocial models. Um, I like this idea of benchmarking standards in pain education. Uh, there are some ways to do that. Uh, I think physical therapists should have a, should be the most known, you know, have the highest level of competence in pain education and knowing what's going on with pain because it's such a common reason to seek healthcare. And then the magic, uh, again, not just for this, but this cohesion. So I think this is something that can piggyback on with other things. Um, of course, the evidence 
and, 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 and I think the other thing to point out is this really is an evidence-driven movement from my perspective. Um, a lot of data support this. Um, but also looking at implementation studies and, and, and effectiveness studies in, in, along with trials. Um, enhanced role of physical therapists in educating patients and the public on this. And then we talked about the identifying key factors and changes to reimbursement system. So some specific examples just to show you, because um, it's a little overwhelming when you start thinking about these, but there are some models to look at. Uh, not too long ago, um, you know, there was a, the manual therapy folks noticed that there was a similar situation. There's some pretty good evidence to support the use of spinal manipulation, and I'm, quite frankly, a lot of our curriculum entry level, they weren't ready to address that. Um, and they got together some task force, um, working with the APTA and the American Academy, and, and decided to address that head on, and had a um, conference, published the proceedings, made it very clear what the expectations were for entry-level use of manual therapy, provided the tools for um, programs that were interested, um, also indirectly provided information to the accrediting body. I think that's a great model to consider because it, I think it has been an effective way to, to uh, implement this change. The other thing is we don't have to we don't have to pluck these out of thin air. We don't have to look at these. There are some professional organizations that study pain specifically. And the timing of this is quite interesting. As I'm working on this um, special issue with Chris Main, um, I get a call from Kathleen Sluka and Paul Watson, who are physical therapists active in um, pain research. And they're revisiting the pain curriculum. The International Association for the Study of Pain has a pain curriculum for physical therapists. Again, something else I was completely unaware of uh, before starting this. So they're revisiting that. And these are folks with pain interests working specifically on these. These curricula are going to be, curriculum for PT is going to be readily available. And um, it's, it's going to be up to date. And this could be a great thing to consider benchmarking in uh, the pain education. Programs could use these. Um, and again, this could be used to help influence uh, people who are um, more involved with uh, curricular decisions and how to incorporate pain education into our normative model. And I'll just give you an example of what the curriculum would look like. This would be the, the major topics, the nature, pain across the lifespan, assessment, measurement, measurement, management, common pain problems, and service delivery. So you could envision this being implemented in um, one class, you could see it put in different parts of classes, you could see continuing education based on this. And just to give you an example, I'm working on the assessment and measurement part, and this would be one um, learning objective. So, you know, physical therapists should demonstrate the ability to, and in this objective, the key here is the multi-dimensional nature and clearly identifying the domains. We're very good at measuring the sensory aspect of pain and then not as good as, as the other parts. Um, but even just making folks aware that pain is multidimensional, and there are different ways to measure the different dimensions. It isn't always the zero to 10. A lot of times it is the zero to 10 scale, um, but there are other ways to get at it. And we've spent a lot of time today talking about the affective and cognitive parts of, of uh, the pain experience. I think another um, example is, uh, of, of opportunities is the, the United Kingdom guidelines do recommend intensive cognitive behavioral uh, therapy for failed first-line low-back treatments. Um, as they are trained right now, PTs are not able to offer this. So 
um, there is a need to look at training paradigms to get physical therapists if the evidence is moving this way and people are going to want to reinforce this. Here's a health system that wants to reinforce this, um, but PTs are unable to meet that. There's just not enough um, knowledge out there. So we need to have training paradigms ready to do that. And then the other is there are some public health initiatives for evidence-based psychosocial education. The, 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 the best known one is the one in Australia, but um, there's a, another attempt at working back Scotland um, that's being revitalized. And this is just providing information on low back pain. And it was very effective in Australia. Um, they've had some trouble reproducing it at other parts of the world, but they still value that, that information. Um, again, when we look at the researcher part of this, I think we need to address some of that overlap that Julie was talking about and, and really hone these down. And if, if the, 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 the origin of this was one questionnaire per construct, if it looks like that's going to be too bulky and you don't gain a lot of information, then you are going to see those screening tools that have one question per construct and give you an idea of what their psychological distress is, you're going to see those being uh, adopted. And that subgrouping hopefully will follow right from that. And I think, you know, one of the things in interacting with psychologists is I think we need to get better idea where, where we can and should deliver cognitive behavioral therapy by physical therapists and where we need to pass the baton. Um, it, it's a little easier when we interact with other healthcare professionals because um, of what our practice act is. There are certain tests and diagnostic procedures that we can't do, and that's very easy threshold to refer. It's a little, little muddier water that we're working on here. So they, uh, as part of the article, have this nice figure um, that we'll reinforce later with kind of the overall figure. Um, but there is a level of relatively easy that should really be part of all PT practice. And these are things some people do probably quite well normally. There are some things there that you can measure and, and see. Then there's the additional training component, which um, would be what we would probably call traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. And then there's the onward uh, referral part, which is uh, the psychopathology or the orange flag so that we, we really are ill-equipped uh, to handle. And then um, really getting uh, the payers, there's also a lot of interest now in, in our research has been very good at identifying treatment effects and things like that. Our research has not been as good in forming policy. And just being aware of that and, and being kind of ahead of the game and, and being well prepared to have this psychological uh, approaches, be have enough method, methodology to be able to inform the policy folks so that you do get some encouragement from your reimbursement to do this. And that ends this. So now it's Chris's turn. Thank you, Steve. Well, we really are almost at the end now. Um, Steve and I are going to present some concluding observations really from what has been a couple of years of work trying to put together this uh, uh, special issue which uh, is in no sense an end point but we hope it might be a starting point for some changes that we believe the evidence tells us uh, we should be uh, uh, looking at and incorporating into changed uh, clinical practice.
So, one or two uh, reflections in summary. We're suggesting psychologically informed practice is offered as a new approach to physical therapy, positioned as a middle way between narrow focused standard physical therapy practice based on uh, biomedical principles and clinical approaches developed originally for the treatment of mental illness. Now, I know this is a little bit of a caricature, but I think it's necessary to understand that we're talking about a shift uh, in how things are, uh, uh, seem to be working at the moment. Uh, and, and this is uh, how we try to integrate our ideas uh, with the flags construct, where on the left-hand side there we've got standard practice, the core philosophy, addressing physical impairments based on biomedical concepts, primary goal, reducing symptoms. Uh, on the right-hand side we've got mental health practice, philosophy, I can't actually read it, uh, <laughs> identifying and treating mental illness with the primary goal of minimizing the impact of psychological disorder on well-being and function. But of course what we have been saying is we feel that most patients actually fit into the middle. Where we're, the, the, the things we're looking at, uh, the philosophy is incorporating patients' beliefs, attitudes and emotional responses into management based on biopsychosocial models. And remember, bio is still in there. Primary goal, secondary pre pre prevention of disability. And so what we're suggesting in, in the change to practice is that the blue and the yellow flags become incorporated into routine management. Psychological informed practice is characterized by routine and specific consideration of yellow and blue flags, depending on the clinical setting or determining the risk of poor outcome and the potential for treatment modification. So we view this approach as fitting best with a cognitive behavioral framework Noting that within the field of clinical health psychology, there's been increasing interest uh, in the cognitive behavioral approach to a range of conditions. But we do want to distinguish this from mental health practice, from which the cognitive behavioral approach was developed with its primary focus on psychopathology and significant psychiatric symptoms. We mentioned the black flags only briefly uh, because these are not uh, appropriate objects uh, in terms of uh, an individual's clinical intervention, but we do need to understand the context and, and Stephen's uh, important uh, comments on, on the need to perhaps reflect on system changes uh, at a training and implementation level may well uh, be focused at the black flag level, you know, characterizing the overall environment or context in which the clinician addresses the other, addressing the other flags must operate and uh, I think uh, in Bill Shaw's talk this kind of link between blue and black flags is quite nicely illustrated but including the professional culture, healthcare policy and insurance reimbursement uh, and you know over the last 20 years we've got uh, progressively better identifying psychological factors and, and fitting them into models of pain and disability. We're only beginning we're, uh, uh, to understand that social factors um, cultural factors, subcultural factors, and so on, ethnic, familial, and economic factors, which of course can set boundaries uh, uh, around the, the range of possible efficacy of our interventions, but possibly also provide inventions for customizing a little bit more psychologically informed physical therapy practice, because they're not addressed uh, at the individual level. So, some summary, some thoughts about goals for physical therapy. We're suggesting the shift in focus necessary, is necessary to include routine consideration of psychological influences, but that it's a logical extension of an evidence-based secondary prevention approach within standard physical therapy practice. So the goal is not only to treat the individual for the current symptoms, that's been a traditional role, 
or the physical therapist, but to stop the development of preventable pain-associated incapacity. And we're suggesting this may involve changes not only to clinical management at the level of the individual patient encounter, with increased consideration of psychosocial factors, but also in the manner and context of service design and delivery, incorporating appropriate incentives for the management of psychosocial factors. Four slides in for me before I hand over to Stephen. Key points. We're suggesting psychologically informed practice as a new clinical framework where psychological processes are an expected and normal and integral part of the musculoskeletal pain experience. There's nothing weird about them. They affect everybody. Psychologically informed practice is the opportunity, we believe, to improve clinical and occupational outcomes through appropriate consideration of relevant psychosocial factors, but as both uh, Stephen and Julie said, uh, we're really only at the beginning of understanding uh, the, some of the complexities, but I think we're beginning to see the buildings in the fog. Beliefs, emotions and uh, behavioural responses have been long recognised as an important concomitant of low back and disability. And the literature to date is focused primarily on the role of patient beliefs, amongst which beliefs about the nature of pain, about fear, pain catastrophizing, and self-efficacy appear to be particularly important. And in psychologically informed practice, these beliefs are a primary focus of the physical therapists in the management of low back pain. We recognize that these are associated with emotional factors, such as anxiety, depression, and anger, and in turn, influence behavioral responses. We have made the point about distinguishing modifiable from non-modifiable psychosocial factors as a critical part of the process. Each may have differing roles in patient management. For example, a non-modifiable psychological factor may be a powerful predictor of outcome, yet be inappropriate as a treatment target. And Julie Fritz's talk uh, very elegantly teased apart some of the uh, perspectives around this. My final slide. We must stress we're not advocating complete disregard of biomechanics uh, biomedical approaches. We do not intend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But we are mindful of the importance of red flags as indicators of the need for urgent specialist opinion. Nothing we've said changes that. But we recognise further the important influence of relevant biomedical factors as an integral part of musculoskeletal management. But evidence suggests these factors should no longer play a primary role in the management of most cases of low back pain. Instead, broader management models should be used to be consistent with current practice guidelines. Stephen. Right. It's kind of Laurel and Hardy act, this. And then just to follow up on some of the comments, and then we'll take uh, questions. And please remember to use the, the microphones. Um, um, that, you know, I think one of the things that is really interesting is, is if, if and how these will be incorporated into the physical therapy training in, in entry level and continuing education. Um, and it, it will require modification. And, and I like Chris's point in the very beginning, for those of you who have been here from uh, tip to tail, uh, this is evolutionary to us. It's not revolutionary. And I really think this is an evolution. Um, these are not things that just popped up. Uh, year ago. Um, this has been going on from a very long time. So I think a modification is the, uh, the appropriate uh, term for that. Uh, my, uh, you know, 
specific call is I, I really think it may be time to look at the normative model from this perspective. Uh, there may be some other factors, not just related to pain, but pain especially was just, I mean, a, a, a really eye-opening experience for me um, to go digging around there and looking for that word and not, not seeing it um, as much as it really should. And not seeing the word pain in the foundational sciences with neuroscience and neuroplasticity um, was was shocking to me. Not seeing pain with psychology was shocking to me. Psychology was listed and it was more to do with the emotional reaction to like failure in sports and things like that and, and to not see the psychological component in pain was, was um, you know, again, just shocking. Of course, I'm biased, but um, it was just, it was very noticeable to me, so. I think, uh, again, we, we realized too that this is, this is going to be a change in training paradigms. There is a little bit of debate over what is CBT, who should be delivering it, and how it should be delivered. It needs to be standardized. I think those are things that we, we have actually some very good uh, collaborations with uh, folks, psychologists, and I think we can do that. Um, we can work with the psychologists and get programs that they're comfortable with. They've done this as part of trials um, that physical therapists deliver and um, can be effective of that. And again, I, I, um, this idea of just being uh, open to some of these newer models of pain perception, we all learn the gate model of pain as our um, understanding of pain perception. And the gate model is extremely influential, obviously. And it's a great model, and, and, and there's debates over whether it's been applied correctly or not applied. But the end result of that model was really pain was viewed as reflexive. And, and I know that wasn't how the model was conceptualized. I know there was a descending component of the gate theory. But when it was taught, when it was applied, it became a very reflexive experience and a peripheral experience. And, and, um, and that was how most of us were influenced with that. And, and I think we just need to be open to these, these newer models. And I think we need to use models. You need to say, what model are you in? If you're in a self-efficacy model, then you may not need to measure as many constructs as if you're in a fear avoidance model. And that's helpful because it is so confusing with all the different ones. And when you try to lump them together, it is confusing. But when you focus on one particular one, it becomes a little, little more uh, palatable. Um, and I think the other thing uh, that we've spent a little bit about is, is um, this idea of behavior change and, and is, is if that is the target, how do we know it happens and, and how do we know that our, our information can, um, can lead to that um, and, and how do we reinforce the behavior change and not just the beliefs change and that's, that's going to be a huge, a huge challenge. Um, this is just, I think, reinforcing this idea that um, there is, when we say secondary prevention, that is a public health term. And generally, public health is geared towards um, groups of people, not individuals. And PTs will um, treat individuals. But it is this idea of using some of these pr public health principles when you're interacting with an individual patient. And again, we're, we're really talking about preventing that um, chronic pain development. Uh, but these interactions aren't really well known. The public health folks have their methodologies, have their approaches, and they're great um, at dealing with large groups of people. Some of those lessons will be applicable to the individual, but we'll have to design some of these on our own. We'll have to work with some of those. But um, I think these public health approaches, there's definitely a merging, a blending of public health 
and health professions across the board and um, I think we're just going to see more of that. And again, the optimal screening methods, the clinical utility part of this, we do not, the last thing we need is a bunch of um, psychologists developing a bunch more theoretical models and a bunch more questionnaires um, and regression models. Uh, we really need to look at the applied part of this and look at optimal screening methods. And we need to follow models like they've done in Chris's group um, with the start back screening tool and matched treatment. And they'll be um, hopefully publishing their clinical trial results soon on this. And that will be a, a very nice model of a, a, a clinically applicable screening tool, some matched treatment, and we'll get an idea of the efficacy of that approach in the United Kingdom. Um, and then we need to be open to adapting those methods. Um, and I think this is, yes, near the end here. Just, we know people have been dealing with, and really that evolution of this is to be more specific, to get away from the unsystematic uh, approaches. And again, just to reinforce, anecdotally, when we work with therapists um, with this, it, it is received well. Um, it, 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 it takes a little while to change that approach. Um, but it is not met with uh, continued, continued resistance. And then this slide is just talking about the, the, the continued need to consider the systems that you're in. So I would like to wrap up by thanking the authors of the series, I'd, especially uh, Julie and Bill for taking extra time to coming here. Um, all the authors put in a lot of time, but Julie and Bill made the extra effort to help us uh, kick off the issue. The reviewers, who we can't tell you who they are, but just now because I don't have them all memorized, but they will be recognized, provided some fantastic uh, feedback. Um, Becky and Dan were very supportive throughout the way, and I just want to add personal thanks for working with Chris Main. It's been a, my pleasure to get to know one of the, the, the big names in the field personally and have a lot of fun and uh, learning a lot about this. So it's been a lot of, uh, a great experience for me. And that is it. That is it. So we'd like to take some questions, and we'd like to thank you for coming to the symposium. And hopefully, you'll look forward to uh, taking a look at the the special issue in in May.